uh, Daniel chapter 1. But before we get started, let's, I want to just kind of get our heads in the right place. So when you think of terms of main characters of a story, if you think about the book of Genesis, who would you say are some of the main characters of the story? God. God. Adam, Eve, Noah, a lot of good ones. Exodus, Moses, Pharaoh, all those folks. Judges, Samson, somebody say Gideon, those guys. Jonah, Jonah, <laughs> and the whale. <laughs> Shout out to the whale. Um, if I ask, you know, who is the main character of the Bible, you would say? Jesus. Jesus, God. It's, it's God's revelation to us, right? And so when I said, who's the main character of Genesis, and who said God? All right. So the point about all of the Bible, but Daniel as well, is we have to continually remind ourselves that this, this is a book mainly about God. Daniel is certainly a featured character, but as we as we go through the book, just like I don't know if you remember in Isaiah, one of our little kind of things was I would say, okay, uh, what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about Jesus? You know, to ask yourself that. So. As we go through, and we're going to hear a lot about Daniel, a lot about history, and all this sort of stuff, but continually keep God as the, the focus, and you will accomplish several things. You'll stay above the fray of some of the various controversies that we'll encounter, and you'll also uh, keep the main thing in view, and that is, uh, what does this say about God? Um, at times along the way, we'll read the Bible and, and we'll say, okay, the Bible is trying to teach me how to behave or how to act or what to do or who to relate to. And there's a lot of secondary things about that, but the main point is that the primary purpose of the Bible is for God to teach us about himself. Uh, and he does it in different ways, and then this way we're going to do it in how he interacts with this guy named Daniel. Now, Dad has uh, laid out our timeline, which is still up here, and um, I'm going to uh, try to post that to uh, last week's message. And also, he handed out a spreadsheet last week, which I intended to post to last week's message. Uh, I think I need to do that uh, yet as well. But we've, we've laid out this timeline, and, and in uh, we've basically said that... Uh, around 605 BC is is when our story starts um, and I can't tell you how many times over the past couple weeks I've scrambled my brain trying to count backwards um, and you know so if that has happened to you uh, you're in uh, good company so we're gonna jump on in and um, We'll encounter early on a couple of uh, points um, uh, about uh, some controversies, or so to speak, 
Uh, we're not going to dwell on those, but as you compare notes or maybe hear uh, different preachers or, or read different commentaries, uh, I at least want you to know to be aware of, of some of the uh, things that are out there. So we'll start with Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Who has tried to sort out an argument between a couple of kids? <laughs> I see several t already. <laughs> Julie, raise your hand. I know Pat has probably done this so many times. And one of the things you want to kind of know is, well, well, what happened? Tell, you know, little Johnny, tell me what happened. Well, I'm sure Johnny has a certain story, and, you know, little Bobby probably has a different story. And trying to sort that out to try find out what really happened is difficult. And, you know, when they say, I, I think sometimes it's not just a cop-out. Sometimes it might be a cop-out, but a lot of times it's not a cop-out to say the truth is somewhere in between. Well, I don't know, but in this first verse, there's all sorts of stuff that people find problems with. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, there are records external to the Bible with pretty reliable dates that say, well, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't king of Babylon at the same time that Jerusalem was besieged. And... It wasn't the third year, it was the fourth year, and so right off the bat, you got people that are, you know, raising points of contention, and, you know, we don't want to ignore these because we do believe the Bible is true. So uh, here's, the, here's the, the deal with this. Um, it is true that at the time that uh, Jerusalem was besieged, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the king. He was crown prince. He was the heir apparent to the king, but he was taking out Egypt and, and Palestine and all of that. Um, but around the time as that campaign was wrapping up, the king who was king at the time, and I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, he died, so he had to hustle back from the war to become king. Now, this isn't that big a deal to reconcile because you could certainly say that Nebuchadnezzar, who became king of Babylon, was the one that besieged Jerusalem. That is true. But he wasn't king at the time, and that's not too hard to reconcile. In Jeremiah, there's a reference to when Jerusalem was besieged, and he says it was the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Well, you know, one place you got the Bible saying it was the fourth year, one place the Bible says it was the third year. How do you reconcile that? Uh, this is going to be in the study notes, but there are actually two or three different ways of doing it, and one of, I think, the most compelling uh, ways to reconcile it is that um, the Jews and the Babylonians start their years at different months. So the Jews started like in the spring, the Babylonians started in the fall, and that accounts for part of it. Also, the year that you became king, the Babylonians call that the year of accession, the, the, the year you were in the process of becoming king, and they didn't count the first year as king until the next year started. So you can read all about that. But 
I say all that to say that when controversies kind of come up uh, in the text, we're not going to sidestep them. We'll toss out the the, the best understanding as, as we have. Uh, and usually there's a reasonable explanation um, if you just uh, go a little bit before the sur uh, below the surface. All right. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, that is, to the land of Babylon, to the house of God, in place of vessels in the treasury of his God. Thus, some of the prophecies that, that those things that uh, were dedicated to God that uh, the Hebrews had, had felt were part of their national identity were ripped from the temple, their holiest place, and not just destroyed, but taken and offered to a pagan god. So this was certainly an affront. But the, one of the most important phrases for our whole chapter is, it says, and the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. So who is responsible for the fall of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? The Lord was. This was fulfillment of prophecy. Um, the Lord gave the king of Judah into their hand. We'll make a point of that in a bit. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So, uh, it was uh, the policy of the day to go and get the, the best and brightest from the country that you were um, attacking and to select uh, part of the, the royal family and other nobles who were educated and so forth. And you see a pretty extensive um, list of qualifications there to remove them. Uh, and the purpose was to come back and to indoctrinate them and teach them all of this new culture. If you think about it, it's really a brilliant strategy. Not only do you take away the leadership of the people that you've just conquered, and you could replace your own leadership there, but now you've got some people, and we think they were fairly young, probably uh, teens, um, early 20s, probably at the oldest, but basically teenage boys who would be fairly impressionable to indoctrinate into this whole new culture. Um, and this is an impressionable age, as we know. Um, it's really a brilliant strategy. Uh, also, if you're conquering, uh, you're going to need people that can handle the places that you've conquered. You're going to need you're going to need some brain power to, to make all that happen. So it was uh, a very smart strategy. And it says to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Um, nothing really can help you assimilate into a foreign country more than knowing the language. And uh, that's, that's part of it. This Chaldeans, um, in many ways, is synonymous with Babylon, but most specifically with 
um, the portion of Babylon that was involved with um, magic and divination and uh, fortune telling and all that sort of stuff. And it was so synonymous with um, this nation that that the, the terms are used interchangeably. But and we're going to see as we go along um, how much value that the Babylonians put on this supernatural uh, ability uh, of, uh, like I said, fortune telling and all that sort of stuff. All right. And as we head into this, um, we're heading into a story that if you've uh, been to church at any point uh, below the age of 18, uh, probably have heard the story of uh, Daniel and his buddies and the food um, at an early age. And so we're going to launch into that part. Verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. I think I've got... Uh, in my study notes, I think I've got some notes um, that has the uh, Babylonian um, explanation for their names. I'll try to put that uh, in the notes. Uh, so they got, they got new names. Uh, it is a little confusing. It says Daniel he called Belteshazzar and later in the book we find that Nebuchadnezzar is also called Belshazzar. So it's, look out for that little T in there that helps you distinguish. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So, uh, if you just read this in a hurry, you think, okay, uh, there were all these dietary laws, and he's saying, I want to respect the dietary laws so I don't violate those, um, so that's what I'm going to avoid. Um, that may have been part of it, but not, not strictly so, because there was... Uh, no um, commandment that said that you couldn't drink wine. So there was, you know, why you included that, we don't really have a good answer. Um, and also we found out later in the, the book there's some indication that, that this might have been a temporary uh, uh, conviction that he had because later we find that maybe he was partaking of some of this food. One argument was that and I think it's probably a decent argument that this was food that had already been offered to the idols, uh, to the gods of the day. And the, the pattern was you would go and offer food to the idols. And then after you had given them some time, whatever was left, the king could have. There was always some left. Uh, and then some of that, whenever the king was done, then that would be divvied out to uh, you know, the royal court. And in this case... Uh, to some of these um, people who had brought over into exile. Um, so it may have been that they didn't want to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. Um, but yet, as we'll see, 
That wasn't 100% either because they did eat the vegetables and probably those that had been sacrificed to idols too. So um, I think the, the best explanation for this to really understand this is in the, the really the first few phrases of the verse. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. This was the decision that he made. It was his own personal conviction. It probably had elements of, you know, the, the um, dietary laws and of the avoiding food sacrifice to idols and all of that. But I think the best, best explanation, and this was from the ESV Study Bible, was that, you know, he said, you know, they're teaching me their language, they're teaching me all this stuff. I need to do something where I draw the line and say, you know what, I'm going to remind myself that I don't belong to this culture. I'm going to do something to remind myself who I really belong to and who I really serve. And I think if you look at this as a personal conviction that he made and his uh, uh, colleagues there, it's almost even more powerful because it, it just tells you the, the amount of resolve that they uh, that they had to say, I'm going to be separate. I'm not going to be fully assimilated into this culture. I'm drawing the line right here um, because I I want to I, I want to in in effect dedicate myself um, to something other than the task that has been assigned to me. Verse nine. Well, let me pick up with verse 8. We talked about this. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Verse 9, and God gave, and God gave, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the Lord. It's very similar phrasing to what God says to Noah. You can go back and compare that. So, he this favor and compassion didn't, you know, the chief of the eunuchs just didn't cut him off. Um, but he, he said, you know, I, I just don't see how I can do this. Um, you're going to put me in jeopardy, and, and I, I like you, Daniel, but I'm not doing that. So what does Daniel do? Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he goes down to the guy that's directly in charge of him. And again makes his appeal and says, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days, and at the end of 10 days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. 
So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. If anybody decides today to go on a vegetarian diet for 10 days, you're not going to look any different. Unless you have a lot of carrots, in which case you might get a little bit of an orange glow. <laughs> That's true. That does happen. So this was a miracle, y'all. This was not just he picked better food. This was a miracle. This was a way that God actually miraculously distinguished these guys. And this is part of this God gave Daniel favor and compassion. This was a miracle. And in a way, a private confirmation to those four where God's saying, I've got you. You are probably feeling very alone right now. The temple's destroyed. I've got you. And note, nobody else knows. We kind of think, okay, well, there's some vindication, like the king comes in a minute and says, oh, everything looks great. He thinks it's because of all the training and the food that they've been given. Nowhere else is God given credit for any of this, or even Daniel and his friends. The only people that know this are those four and the steward, as best we can tell. A lot of people have said the steward was probably willing to agree after the experiment because that meant for the next three years he got the good stuff which he may not have had access to. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So there's some interesting stuff here. First of all, um, it says... uh, something about uh, this culture. Uh, apparently, um, the things, some of the things that they were schooled in were not, were, definitely were not kosher things um, and were, um, were certainly not uh, godly things. Uh, the Babylonians, you know, they would cut open a sheep's liver and use that to predict the future and You know, all of these sorcery things, those are the things, some of the things at least, that they were teaching. So when it says that they were ten times better, it doesn't mean that they were better at reading how the liver came open or something. But they had the truth, and the other ones didn't have the truth, right? Um, It's ten times better, it's not... They're not even on the same standard. One 
they're working with truth and one, uh, they're working with um, uh, the devil in essence. Uh, this also says a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, consternation about our education system. You know, it catches a lot of flack, you know, and there are, there's the full gamut of where Christians fall out on this. You know, there are some people who say, um, I don't want anything that's not in the Bible going into my, you know, offspring. So I'm going to just filter everything, right? And you do that, you exert total control, you go homeschool your kids, and you really sequester them and make sure that the things they're hearing are truth. I have dear friends who take that approach. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got people who say, that's ridiculous. I don't want my little Johnny growing up and not knowing what evolution's about, or that people can disagree about things, or that there are maybe nice people who live and act and behave different ways. You know, I don't, I don't want that kind of isolation, right? Um, this affects us, you know, this affects our teachers. You know, um, we've got godly teachers who have to navigate some of this and and uh, what do you teach what do you believe you know do you you know how do you handle that well take note here they passed the test they had to learn it and apparently they learned it very well so much so that they learned it better than everybody else even people who were raised in that culture just something to think about um, I, I, I truly see both sides of this. Um, uh, having been on the board of a homeschool support organization for probably, well, really up until about two months ago for the last 20 years, I certainly support that, having homeschooled my kids um, for uh, six or eight grades. But I see the other side, too, having had both of my children graduate from public high school. Um, so I, I like the blend, honestly. <laughs> um, I do have one plug for homeschooling, and that is not for what it does for the kids, but what it does for the parents. It really does change you as a parent. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, you know, and I think um, it's, it's actually not a bad argument for um, this being in the world but not of the world. You've heard that uh, concept. Uh, so, one final thing. We're going to have a little discussion here. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So who's King Cyrus? King Cyrus was head of the Persians. So the Persians did what to the Babylonians? They conquered them, right? So here we have this young man 
15, 16, 17, I don't know, pick an age. And I think sometimes as we read Daniel, we always picture Daniel in his young man days or late adolescent days, at least I kind of have. But if you put the numbers to it, he was there until he was in his early 80s. So all of chapter 1 covers about 60-some, 65 or so years. When I first kind of tried to grapple with that, I I said, that's really interesting. (laughs) That's really cool. Um, So he lived his whole ministry in the service of this very pagan king in a very pagan culture and must have been so adept. Can you imagine the politics, which we're going to get into some of it in the coming weeks, can you imagine the internal politics that happens when you're so close to a ruler, surrounded by other people who also want to be so close to that ruler, and you're trying to influence them in good ways, and other people are trying to influence them in bad ways? Can you imagine that? There are probably about, I don't know how many now, 10 or 12 people in the former Trump administration who could identify with that you know they haven't survived the first 14 months let alone 60 some years Daniel must have been really really good politician you know how do you navigate that with truth and integrity um, and survive (laughs) I mean when it says God gave favor and compassion And in verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. That's the evidence for the the wisdom right there. I mean, I know it says Solomon was the wisest, but if you can be at the elite portion of a political culture and survive for 60-some years, that's, that's pretty good. That is really pretty good. So... Big ideas. Who's in control? Chapter 1, God is all in control, right? God is all in control. Who is looking out for Daniel? God is looking out for Daniel. Um, What does this say about how we should behave? Should we abstain from things? Should we not abstain from things? Should we abstain from things for a season and then not? Um, Does it tell us that? Not really. Not really. Um, I think it does make the point of personal conviction. Where's the best chapter in the Bible on personal conviction? Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and I would now add Daniel chapter 1 to that. The key verse in Romans 14 is each person must be fully convinced in their own mind. Right? Fully convinced in their own mind. Um, And then you stand by your convictions. It is okay to have a conviction that limits your own freedom for your own reasons. That's kind of what Daniel did. 
right? You just got to be careful if you do that for your own reasons, don't try to impose that on somebody else who maybe hasn't chosen to do that. Another question I had, what does this say about where our true struggle is in terms of our culture? Is our goal to create a Christian culture in the world or in America? Chuck Colson wrote a book that would argue, yes, that's, that is an honorable thing to do. Um, and to the extent that Christian politicians can help make it easier for God's truth to come through, God bless them. But how successful are we going to be doing that? Probably not. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, uh, I think he actually was a physician, he was uh, in um, England, uh, certainly a pastor, said specifically about the New Testament, but he said, the New Testament is never interested in conduct and behavior in itself. And he says, I can go further and say that the New Testament does not make an appeal for good behavior to anyone but Christian people. The New Testament is not interested in the morality of the world it tells us quite plainly that you can expect nothing from the world but sin and that in its falling condition is incapable of anything else. So there's only one message for people who aren't Christians and that is not don't have an abortion, you know, don't commit homosexuality. You know, that's those aren't the messages that the culture needs to hear. They just need to Hear the message of, you need to repent and deal with your sin. The message of repentance is really the only thing that applies to them. Messages about behavior and walking in the light, all that sort of stuff, that's once you're saved. It doesn't really even apply to them. And we can get in some trouble when we try to get that order out of whack. So, what do you think about the first chapter of Daniel? There's a lot in there, right? So uh, any any closing comments before we wrap up? Jim. Just a little on the right side with a surgical surgical colleagues like Dr. David George Reagan and all the surgeon's creed is a cut is a cure and all bleeds. That's right. Uh, I think he said a cut is a cure and all bleeding eventually stops. I think it's interesting that the names that they named them um, were an attempt to undermine their faith as well because they mean earth god, sun god, and fire god. Mm -hmm. So they, the new names were and, and the Belteshazzar is, is the name god. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, everything that they did was Exactly. That's that's where I struggle. I revolve. I say I'm not going to, and then I do. I'm not going to. I need to resolve. 
<laughs> resolve instead of revolve. I like that. All right. Well, I'm excited. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to be here next week or if uh, Dad's going to be here next week. We'll arm wrestle for it. Um, I, they do appreciate your prayers uh, as they are on their way back. Um, and uh, as always, uh, uh, thank you for the support that you give both of us. But um, uh, it, it really means a lot to Mom and Dad. It really does. Uh, you know Dad. He never does say much, but uh, it, does, uh, it does mean a lot. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you are keeping your hand on each of us, and we pray that you'd uh, help us to navigate these sticky situations that we get ourselves in and give us a fresh perspective on how we deal with our culture and, and how can we engage in ways that uh, would make you proud and would uh, show people Christ. Uh, we thank you for your son. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody.